So it's been quite a week, hasn't it? Hasn't it been a glorious, glorious week to see such an unjust law overturned? An act of righteousness that was an act of our God. Yes, an act of Supreme Court. Yes, an act of 49 or 50 years of of righteous protest, but it was God who acted in God's timing. And for that we say amen. Amen. From that we give great thanks to our Lord and our King and our God. And we need to be sure we're in that boat and not taking credit for the work. Many of us, have not me, but many of you have been knee-deep in this in pregnancy, pregnancy care centers for years and years. Some of you have, have been hands-on in this ministry. And it's a joyful day, but it's a day to give thanks to our God because it is righteousness that has reigned. Now, we know that God rules. Christ rules. We know that his, his righteousness is perfect. But we also know we're living in a world of sin. And so as we watch this, we mustn't rest on laurels, right? Because this doesn't end the wickedness of abortion. This limits it in great ways, and for that we should be thankful, and we should not stop rejoicing. But as Proverbs 21.15 says, when justice is done, it brings joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. Well, there are evildoers who are professing their own terror. There are people who are, who are professing their fear now that this, this right of abortion, so-called, is not theirs any longer. There are people who are professing the name of Christ who are saying this is an abomination that the courts have done. Let that sink in. People who profess the name of Christ in some areas are saying this work of the court is an abomination because God is on the side of the abortionists. There's work to be done. Because see, this is going to be a test. God has chosen this timing. Isn't he amazing? Now who knows when we get to heaven, we'll find out all that's behind and maybe we will never find because his ways are often secret to us. But during pride month, we get life. During the month that that this insidious view that we're taking pride in the abominations to the Lord, the Lord comes through with something people have been praying for for 50 years, and he overturns something that let righteousness reign in the midst of men and women who are saying, I am prideful that I am an enemy of the king. And God has done this because he who sits in the heavens laughs when the nations rage against him. So this will be a challenge for us because we as the church, it's time for the church to even step up further. Because if this is going to have its effect like in Arkansas, where now abortion should not be in Arkansas, then there will be more babies born than there were last year. Where's the church? Are we going to be there? Have we been there? Will we be there? What is your role? What is our role as a church? But it's also God is using this We've learned in Isaiah, and we will continue to learn, that God is with us in judgment and in hope. So at the same time he is with us in giving us this blessing, he is with us in continuing to judge evil, and it will increase. And that increase will be just like we read about and have learned about in chapter 8, where those that in darkness shake their fist and contempt at God, and their darkness grows even darker. We're walking in Isaiah 8 and 9 days. So we need the message of Isaiah 8 and 9. We also need the message of all the scriptures to continue to motivate us. I want to start with a psalm this morning, Psalm 86, if you'll turn there. I'm not going to make a lot of comment on it, but it is a psalm for us. Because this is what God has done. He has shown us a sign of his favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Yahweh, have helped me. And comforted me. That's the cry of the church this morning. Look with me, if you will, at Psalm 86. In fact, why don't you stand as we, as a habit of reading scripture and standing together. Our scripture passage for the sermon has already been read this morning. I won't reread it, but we'll stand and as I read this, connect your heart and mind with the words of David. Incline your ear, O Yahweh, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. 
Be gracious to me, O God, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abundant in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Yahweh, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way. O Yahweh, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life. And they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Yahweh, have helped me and comforted me. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. Now, this psalm is a cry for help from someone who is suffering and mourning. And in this area that we've celebrated the overturn of this unjust law, we have been, as a church, as God's people suffering and mourning and crying out to him. So he has indeed answered us with this sign, hasn't he? It's putting to shame all the enemies of God. It is, it is affirming us. Now, it's not the Supreme Court and the government or the right or the left affirming us. It is God affirming us because he is the sovereign one. And at the same time, the prayer of verse 14 and 15, there are insolent men who are now motivated even more to rise up against God's church. We're already seeing it. We'll see it again. Are we ready? Are we ready with a trust in a sovereign God who will act as he sees fit, when he sees fit, even if we have to wait another 50 years for the next movement? Because our job is to be faithful and to stand up against evil and to look out for the the injustices in the world, to look out for the widows and the orphans and the children in the womb. That is the role and calling of God's church. This gives us an opportunity to do it even greater, to feel the weight. Maybe it's something we need to repent of. Maybe it's something you need to repent of, of being sterile and separated from this. And yes, you're against abortion, and yes, you vote for that, but you're not involved. You're not engaged in any other way. Maybe it's time to repent and see what God would set before you. But it could definitely be a time where Hatred against God is manifest more against you, more against our church, because the more vocal we get and the more active we get in the ministry of sovereign grace, the more his enemies are going to rise up. Are we ready? So it is God with us in judgment for those who hate him, and the darkness is getting darker, and in hope for those who love him, because we know the end of the story. This is Isaiah 8 and 9, is it not? This is the flow of Isaiah 8 and 9. God's people walking against him and God judging them but preserving a remnant. And that remnant is promised that they will see the light even in the midst of the darkness that constantly consumes and overwhelms. And that remnant will see in the coming days from Isaiah 8 and 9, they will see in the coming days the rise of the Messiah. And we have seen him. We have seen our Lord. We see him Clearly through the pages of Scripture, we sense his presence regularly. We see the advancement of his kingdom. And Isaiah 9 helps us to be more prepared for any uprising of the evil that we might experience. Now, our text has already been read. I'm not going to go back and read it again, but I do want you to turn 
to Isaiah chapter 8. Now, as I told you last week, in chapter 8 and moving into chapter 9, in our Bibles, chapter 9, verse 1, is actually in the Hebrew Bible, verse 23 of chapter 8. So this is one of those kind of unfortunate chapter divisions that were added well later, years later. And yet it still is a transitional verse. So it helps us even more clearly to see the transitional nature of the verse. And we know that right off the bat because we see that word at the beginning of chapter 9, verse 1, but... So we're seeing something opposite of what has been said. So let's remind ourselves of what has been said in verse 21 and 22, where Tommy read for us already. They will pass through the land, Isaiah 8, 22, or 21. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So remember the picture we left with last week. The people are being oppressed by God because as it's been told to us earlier, just a few verses earlier um, in verse 17, that Yahweh is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. So from God's people, Yahweh is hiding his face. And that's that picture of saying they don't see him. It's as if they don't, he doesn't see them because his covenant faithfulness has brought about the judgment that the covenant demands. If you obey me, you'll have blessings. If you disobey me, you will have curses. And much of what we've seen already in Isaiah, those are curses that are mentioned all in the, in the uh, first five books of the Bible, and Leviticus and Deuteronomy specifically, the, and Exodus, these curses that will happen if God's people do not obey him. And so in 8th century B.C. Israel, we are seeing the northern kingdom, the, the, the threat of the, the Assyrians to come and take the northern kingdom, but we also learned that that threat, will, Assyria will keep on pushing through and overtake the southern kingdom, and all God's people will be walking in darkness. And those who are enemies of his... Those who are not of circumcised hearts, those who are not true Israelites, shake their fist at the Lord contemptuously toward him, blaming him for the judgment that they're receiving. And every time they shake their fist, the darkness increases because that's what happens with evil. Pursuing evil brings darkness. Continue to pursue it, the darkness grows. The coldness of heart, the lack of vision to see truth around us, and that's where we left them. But then we get this glorious word in chapter 9, verse 1. But, so if we don't have that, we're, our face is in the dirt, but we do have that, so we perk up. Wait a minute, there must be something else. The Lord not, may not be finished yet. And that's where chapter 9, verse 1 to verse 7 give us another one of those glorious pictures of the hope that is set before the Israelites, those in Judah, and the hope that is set before us. And in these verses, we see two realities accomplished by the zeal of Yahweh of hosts through the promised Messiah. Now, I've taken the last phrase and put it in the purpose statement because I want us to see that. Just look at the end of chapter 7, or the end of verse 7 of chapter 9. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. That was what we must keep in front of us through this whole passage. This is God's passionate care for his people that is working after the butt. This is God with his remnant providing what they need. And it's his zeal. Now zeal, this jealousy, jealousy can be used and so can zeal in a bad way. But for God, his character is perfect. So this is the goodness of zeal, that passion that he has to provide for his people, which is the storyline of scripture. God seeking out a people for himself and providing everything they need to be his people, to be in his presence. So it is through the, the zeal of Yahweh of hosts 
that all of the promised Messiah and these realities that we will see this morning will be accomplished. And there are many ways we could divide up the text. I've divided it up into, into two realities, and I want you to see why. Two things about this text. First of all, many of your texts will have future language. This will happen. And some of your texts will have uh, past tense language. This has happened. So when we read this, we need to understand that the, the grammar behind this in the Hebrew, these are perfect tense verbs. And the perfect tense requires a past tense translation, but it really doesn't give us any indication of time. It just means something has happened in the past. And there are many ways that a perfect can be used, but these, I think, fit into the category of prophetic perfects. This is something that is happening in the future, but it is so sure that it's happening that we can say that it's already happened. That's the language Isaiah is using. Because if the zeal of Yahweh of hosts is going to do this, we know that it will be done. Amen? So this is the, the power of the text. So whether your text has this in future language or whether this text has in past language, the past language is even more grand because it is, it is receiving the promises of God in such a way that says, I know for sure without exception and doubt that this will happen so much so that I can say it's already happened. And that's the language that's used. The second thing I want you to see is that when you read through a text, you should be looking for markers in the text to help you see its structure. The authors of Scripture oftentimes have their flow of thought in a discernible structure that helps us see what is being taught. And I want you to notice at the beginning of verses 4, 5, and 6, the little word for. Possibly you have because there. If you have the NIV, maybe 5 doesn't have that, but it should have it. I'm not knocking the NIV. I'm just saying that's what it should be. Each of those verses should start with for or because. So when we see those, we are looking, well, for what? On what basis? What, what, am, I, what am I looking for that's going to follow this word that is connected to what's before it since it says for? So keep those two things in mind as we traverse through the text. So the first reality accomplished by the zeal of Yahweh of hosts and accomplished through the promised Messiah, Messiah is there will be light for those in darkness. We see that in verses 1 and 2. So look at 9-1. But, so we've just left everyone in darkness. E even the remnant are in this darkness. They're not pursuing evil so that darkness continues to overtake them, but they're walking through the consequences of this judgment. And so God is speaking specifically now to a group of people. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. And that's picking up the language of verse 22, the gloom of anguish that they're walking in, the distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Now that her who was in anguish is the remnant. There are a group of people, again, that have popped up all the way through our study of Isaiah so far that God is dealing with and making promises to and bringing joy and hope to in the midst of his threatened judgment. And again, we turn to that remnant. Look at your text. In the former time, now, in the former time is what the ESV says. If these are prophetic, purpose, uh, prophetic perfects, and they're using past death language to talk about something that's going to happen, when does the former time refer to? Isaiah's time, right? The former time is the current time in Isaiah. And he's going to speak so clearly about what's going to happen in the future that he's saying, if you could look back from the future, you'd see that now, and then he's going to tell us about now. In the former time, he brought into, that is God, Yahweh, brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. So here are two tribal allotments here. And I should have probably put a map in the slides, but I neglected to do that. So if you want to turn to your maps in the back of your Bible and find, find a picture of, the, of, the, of a map of the times of the tribes being um, allotted, the time of Abraham, I mean the time of David and Solomon, some, either one of those maps will, will do you. But if you look at the Sea of Galilee and you look to the north and to the, le to the west of the Sea of Galilee on your map above and to the left, you will see an area that is Naphtali. And then just south and west of that, you will see the land of Nebulun. Those are on the northern parts of the northern kingdom. Right? So we're, we're talking geographically the northern parts of the northern kingdom. 
Now, look back at your text and see the other places that are mentioned. We'll come back to what's happening there in a moment. The way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, and Galilee of the nations. So the way of the sea could be that whole northern section between um, Galilee and the Mediterranean, right, where the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean, right where Nebulun sits, or, yeah, Nebulun sits, Zebulun sits. It could be there. Or it could be that whole northern area around the sea, but it's still dealing with the north, another way of saying it. The land beyond the Jordan, that's on the other side of the Jordan River, right? That's what we call the Transjordan, the east side. And, and um, Naphtali kind of wraps around there a little bit, but you also have another town of Gilead over there, uh, on, still in that northern section on the other side. And then when you see Galilee of the nations or Galilee of the Gentiles, the Goyim, when you see that, we're talking about the Gal- Galilee, which is in the north, and it's identifying that as being mixed up, not just Jews, but all people in there. Now, think about what's going on in Isaiah with the king of Assyria. Assyria is to the north, and when he comes south with his armies, what are the first nations, the first areas he's going to get to? These are the areas he's going to come to first. These are the areas that he's probably already come to on his way to the outskirts of Jerusalem where he doesn't quite make it to Jerusalem. And all those people, all the men of, men of valor and all the men, women, and children either die or taken into captivity. In fact, the first three provinces that Tiglath-Pileser, the, the king of Assyria, the first three provinces that he sets up are in Zebulun, Naphtali, and Gilead. Those are the first three provinces. And you remember what we've already learned, that as he takes them over, he takes many into captivity, but he also sends a bunch of other people into the land to pollute it, right? So there's not this national identity. So even in the days of Jesus, this is still the land of the Gentiles because it is mixed more than all the rest. So we're talking about this northern kingdom. It has purpose, the northern part of the kingdom. It has a purpose in Isaiah's day, but it's also going to have a purpose in Jesus' day. So look what it says. They were formerly brought into contempt, but in the latter time, so that's sometime in the future, not marked in 9-1, but sometime in the future, he has made glorious or he has honored the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Well, how has he honored them? Look at verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of Deep darkness on them hath light shined. I think in verse 2, your version should move into poetry where you see it offset in the way poetry would be offset. And that'll bring your mind back to the parallelism that poets use in Hebrew poetry. And those parallels can take different forms, right? It can restate the same thing. Uh, The second part, the parallel part can restate it in a different way or maybe an intensified way. And here we have an intensification. You see it? The people who have walked in darkness, and you look at the third line of that verse, those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness. So it's not just walking, but they're dwelling, they're sitting in a land. It's not just darkness, but it's deep darkness. And then if you see, have seen a great light, and then skip the next line and go to the last one of verse 2, on them has light shined. So it's not only that they've seen, but there's, there's something passive about this for them, isn't it? There is a light that is shined on them, on a specific group, and that specific group has seen it. This is being spoken of as the remnant. So in the midst of this darkness that is growing and overtaking those who are pursuing evil, for the remnant, there is a light that shines upon them. There is hope that comes through this light, even though they're still dwelling in darkness. But we don't just leave it here, do we? It does have meaning for them. It does have meaning for the people that Isaiah is preaching to that there is a light that's going to dawn on you. So take hope, but turn to Matthew chapter 4. Verse 12. We're seeing Jesus begin his ministry in verse 12. But isn't that nice? That's even what the heading in the ESV says, isn't it? Aren't I a genius? Verse 12. Matthew 4, 12. Now when he heard that, that is Jesus, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. 
so that, so there's a reason, a purpose that he has, what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he quotes our verses from Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the re region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. So the shadow of death is the deep darkness in, that's mentioned in the ESV, it's deep darkness in verse 2. It's the same word that's used in Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that's the same word that's used. So that's why it's translated like this in, in the New Testament when Jesus quotes it. So Jesus is saying this passage of Scripture that we're looking at now, Isaiah 9 and following, remember our, our hermeneutical principles. There are many times that Old Testament writers and Old Testament speakers quote one verse or one section of Scripture from the Old Testament, and we're intended to oftentimes see the entire context of that. That's what's happening in Isaiah 9. So Jesus says, I'm going to this point because this is what Isaiah told his people to hope for. The, Isaiah told his people to hope for the time that the Messiah would come and the light would shine coming first to those areas that first received darkness when God judged the northern kingdom. And he says, we must do it this way because this fulfills the, prop, the, the prophecy. And it's clearly the Galilee of the Gentiles, because even in Jesus' day, there are more Gentiles than Jew in the northern part of the kingdom, because the northern kingdom has been assimilated into Assyria. It's the southern kingdom that the remnant is, is marked, from, marked from coming from. So this changes, or expands, I should say, how we look at Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. Because when we get to verses 6 and 7, we're perfectly comfortable talking about messianic things, right? Because we've talked about these. At Christmas time, we've talked about them many times. And you've studied these verses before. So we're comfortable there. But we should be thinking messianic all the way through the section. Because it has a physical fulfillment, but it also has a spiritual fulfillment that we must see. Back to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, those first two verses, we see the first reality. There will be light for those in darkness. Now, here's the way I, I brought out the second reality. I brought out the second reality as increase. There will be increase. Constantly we're seeing the idea of increase in this passage. And it really sets the tone for a messianic fulfillment. The things that Jesus has come and his kingdom is forever and it's increasing. And our salvation, even as we receive it, we receive an increasing joy and an increasing growth in that as we are sanctified. And the, the, the gospel goes forth and more and more people come to Christ. And it's increasing. And that's what we see even this metaphor seen in Isaiah chapter 9. So the second reality is there will be increase. First, of God's people. Look at verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. And remember, prophetic perfects, talking about future events that are so sure that we see them now as reality. So when the promise is that God has multiplied the nation, what he's saying is it's not only Jew, but it's Jew and Gentile. And that's all been prophesied in the Old Testament over and over and over. There are many places in the Old Testament, in the Psalms and in the prophets, where we have the, 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 the people of God being both Jew and Gentile. Both Jew and Gentile called to the mountain in the Psalms to worship, called to be obedient to Yahweh. We saw that in chapter 2 where the nations come in the, in the, in the picture of the glorious new heaven and new earth. The nations come. And even in the picture that's used in Isaiah, they come to seek the counsel of God. What does God have to say about how we should live? So the people, God's people, are increased. And when we see back to the Old Testament through the eyes of the new, what do we see? That he has made a new man. Ephesians, right? There's a new man made. Jew and Gentile together. The dividing wall has been broken down. And Jesus comes as the uniter of that new man, Jew and Gentile together. So the first increase is of God's people. But there's a second increase, and that increase is of joy, and that takes up the major part of the centrality of our, the center part of our text. Look at verse three. You have multiplied the nation. The second line says, you have increased its joy. 
That's going to be the driving force. But look at how it starts. They rejoice before you, in your presence, before your face. Now, we might be tempted to skip over that and say, well, yeah, they're going to be, who else would you rejoice before if you realize that it's Yahweh who's doing this? But what does it take for even an Old Testament saint to be in the presence of Yahweh, to be before his face, to be in his presence? It takes a movement of God to forgive, right? To restore. That's what the whole Old Testament um, sacrificial system did. It was God's way of saying, I am a holy God and you are an unholy people, but I desire to be among you and I desire you to be in my presence. So do this so that you are holy and you can be in my presence. And then we see moving into the New Testament, we see Jesus coming, the perfect fulfillment of all of that sacrificial system. He's not only the great high priest, but he is the offering. He gives it himself. He gives it in the heavenly places so that he's gone before us, so that we who are united with him can follow him into that place. And we now have his presence. And in the new heavens and new earth, we will have his presence even more close, face to face with our Savior. So this is a pregnant statement that they will rejoice before him. It is a spiritual fulfillment. And we're going to see how that is going to be possible as the text goes. But look at it even describing this rejoicing in ways that ancient people would understand um, experientially. As with the joy at the harvest, verse 3, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. So just picture being in an agrarian society and, and nurturing your land, nurturing your soil, preparing it to be planted. And then you plant it and you nurture your soil and you water it and you feed it and, and you take the weeds out of it. And all along you're praying to the God of creation to bring the rains and sprout the grain or to, 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 to make the fruit grow on the vines. But you're tending to all of that and you do that for the entire growing season. And then all of this land has to be harvested so you and your family you work for days to bring in the harvest and you put you put the grain into the vats and you put into the bins and you put the wine into the vats and you're thanking God for his provision and you're feeling the fruit of your labor and the joy of God providing for you as you settle down into the winter that kind of joy is what we experience and that would have been something so experiential, the whole congregation will be saying, nodding their head in favor, saying amen, knowing the richness of that. But another metaphor is also brought, isn't it? This metaphor of of being in war. And so the battle is done. The enemy is vanquished. They're gone. Your homeland, your territory is defended, whatever the need was. And now you have nothing left but to take the spoils of war and divide it up amongst you. It's a time of rest. It's a time of peace. It's a time of abundance. Those are the metaphors he uses to try to capture what it means to rejoice before the face of Yahweh. So we're already turned to this picture of a loving God who wants his people rejoicing in nothing but him. Because notice he doesn't say, think back when the harvest was done and I want you to experience that joy. He says, you remember the joy you experienced at the harvest? It's even better because now you'll be before the face of God in his presence. So there's a spiritual reality and there are things that must happen, but the rest of this text gives it to us. So there's an increase of joy for God. Um, then, Then we have the three fours that come that give us the expression of that joy, why we can be rejoicing before God. The first four is in verse four, for God will deliver us. So there's rejoicing, There's an increase to the nation, but there's an increase in joy. Why is there an increase in joy? Why can we go before him with this joy? Verse 4, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now these the his, these third person masculine, his, 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 refer back to the nation from the last verse. So it's collective. So the nation, you have um, you, the yoke of the nation's burden, the staff of the nation's shoulder, the rod of the nation's oppressor. <clears throat> you, Yahweh, have broken as on the day of Midian. So when we're reading this, our mind should automatically go back to the captivity in Egypt. 
when, when God's people were, were captive and they were made to make bricks and all the punishment that Pharaoh made them go under, the oppression, these are all terms that are used of that time. The burden, the yoke, the oppressor. Throughout scripture, these are the terms that are used. So we're thinking, first of all, we used to be in captivity and now... Whenever this happens, if we're in 8th century Israel, we're not going to be in captivity. We're already thinking of the exodus and God's provision. But he also gives another description at the end there, doesn't he? He says, you have broken, uh, broken all of those as on the day of Midian. So what is the day of Midian? We're not going to read the whole story, but there's a section that leads us into this that describes the world we live in. And I want you to see us. Turn to Judges. Turn back to Judges in chapter 6. as in the day of Midian, is going to appoint us to a certain time that is preceded by the passage we're going to read. I want you to turn to Isaiah or, uh, Judges 6, verse 28. Midian has come against Israel. The nation of Midian has come against Israel. And in the midst of this, God has called Gideon. He's called him to serve him. And look at verse 28. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. Now, this has all been told to us in the verses before that Gideon is behind this. Verse 29, and they said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son, that he may die, for he was broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubbaal. That is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. Now, isn't that a picture of the world we live in today? With people contending for Satan, standing in public saying, if, if abortion isn't safe, then neither are you. That's not standing for the God of creation, is it? That's not standing for Yahweh. It's not standing for Christ. It is contending for Satan himself, and we live in that world where all so many people are standing in public with power and with a microphone and with the nod of a media and the nod of elected representatives and saying what is good is evil and what is evil is good. We live in this world. And our God never changes. He's still the God who knows the ends from the beginning and frees and comforts and provides for his people. And our job is to trust in him. And the more they contend and shake their fist at God and contend for Satan, the more we are in their crosshairs. This is a picture of where we live. Now, what happens? You know this famous story of the battle. This famous story of the battle is that, that Gideon comes against Midian with 32,000 men, and God says, no, that's too many men. And the reason is, he says, I don't want you to take credit or to get credit for what I'm about to do. So he goes through that, that mysterious thing about let him go drink water and see what happens. And first thing he says is let those who are afraid go home. And they go from 32,000 to 10,000. Then he sends them all to the brook and says, let them drink, and those who drink like this... Keep those who drink like this, send away. So we go from 32,000 to 10,000 to 300 soldiers. And God says, now, I will provide Midian through you. So they still have to fight. They still have to stand. They still have to believe that God is a God who will do what he says he's going to do. But God is going to get the glory because it's 300 soldiers, which had no way to beat that army. And yet they do. So back in Isaiah 9, turn back there if you're not there. All of this deliverance will take forth, will happen as on the day of Midian. Just as God acted there, he will act in the future because our God never changes. And just as God acted at Midian and through his son Jesus on the cross, what did Jesus do? What did Jesus set us free from on the cross? He sets us free from sin. 
That whole picture of the exodus and God's provision for his people out of slavery is used throughout the scriptures and in the New Testament so clearly as being the picture, the type of Jesus delivering his people from sin so that we are no longer under the tyranny of sin. We are set free from sin. So that is the spiritual nature of what we see out of the promises in Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. How will they be before the face of God? Because Jesus, the light that will shine, the Messiah that will come, is the one who will provide for their sin so that they and all of those who trust in him, even the people in the 8th century looking forward to the Messiah, have their sin dealt with on the cross by the Messiah. And you say, well, Rob, the Messiah hasn't even been mentioned yet, but you know that we're heading there, don't you? So an increase of joy for God will deliver us. But look also at verse 5. Not only will he deliver us from any physical oppressors, but also from sin, for God will give us victory. Here's this language of war. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So any battle that's being fought, don't worry. Your God will put it aside. All the weapons that they have, all the protection they have, all the evidences of people that have been killed, it'll all be put aside because I will give you victory. And there will be a physical victory. There will be a physical victory that these people never fully see. And yet the physical victory, even for us, is not fully seen, is it, until the new heavens and new earth. We are still fighting sin. We are still watching evil have its way when God allows it to do that. And yet there will be a time where there will be no more sin, no more death, no more dying, no more suffering, and we will sit before the face of God. It is the one who is coming who will provide that kind of victory. So there'll be increase of joy for God will deliver us and God will give us victory. But the third four begins in verse 6. For God will give us our Messiah. And these verses bring to us a son, a ruler, an eternal God. For un, or to us a child is born, to us a son is given. So we're back to a child again. Isaiah, God is using Isaiah in many ways with children, isn't he? We have the children as signs and portent of, of uh, Shear Jashub, of the remnant will return, and Meir Shalal Hazbaz, uh, swift to the speedy, quick to the spoil, as pictures of what God is going to do. There will be a remnant, even though there will be a judgment. We also have already met Emmanuel, the child that will be born, that has a future fulfillment. We're being reintroduced to Emmanuel right here. This is the further description of Emmanuel, God with us, because he is with the remnant, and he is with the remnant in these ways, and they can take it to the bank, so to speak. So much so that everything that will happen future, Isaiah says, you need to believe it so much as if it's already happened. Because if they are true Israel, it will happen for them as well. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, let me give us a caution here. When we talk about son and father, we're not talking about persons of the Trinity here. We're getting ready to describe the nature of the king, his characteristics. So when we see son and father, we don't think, okay, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the second person of the Trinity. We don't think that. This is a son. It's a child that's to be born, and it's a son. That way it falls into the line of David and can fulfill all the Davidic prophecies of the one who will rule as verses 6 and 7 say that he will rule. Because we're not going to have time to go to it, but if you go back um, and look at the promises to David about his son Solomon, when you go back and look at... at um, 2 Samuel 7, at those promises, you will see a lot of the same language pulled right from there and put in here because they're promises to David about Solomon, but they also have Solomon representing the eternal king who will sit on David's throne. So to us, a son is given. And the government shall rest upon his shoulder. So the government, a word closely related to prince that we see. So we're talking about a king and his rule. And that government lies on his shoulder. He has relieved the burden from our shoulders through his work on the cross, but he takes his seat at the right hand of God and the government rests upon his shoulders because he is the ruler of his kingdom. It sets the stage for us right there. And his name shall be called, and then we have a list of names. Some of your versions might have mighty and counselor as two different names. And that could be. 
There's a different construction for mighty and counselor. Mighty is a noun, where the other, it's not functioning as a descriptor of counseling, uh, as a, of the counselor so much, because it forms as a noun. But I think it's a noun forming the, and having the role of an adjective, describing the counselor. Because in Hebrew, the patterns are important. And so the next uh, names, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, are, are couplets. So if somebody wants to say there are five names here, I'm not going to argue with them. I still think there's four, but this, this wonderful is not just, oh, yeah, it's good. Th this has to do with supernatural realities, like signs and wonders. It's the same word we, we see in verses like, who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? It has to do with this miraculous work that God does. Psalm 77, 1, or 11, I will remember the deeds of Yahweh. Yes, I will remember your wonders. There's our word, wonders of old, your miraculous works. So we're already in the divine category with the first word, that these are miraculous things that are coming. And the counsel that he gives, that we can even give him this name. Now, this might be throne names in that ancient Near Eastern tradition where kings would have names that would follow them, trying to build up their, their stature as, as divine men. But if it is, it's intending to blow those names out of the water. So if we have throne names, what the intention for these throne names are is to say, this is like no other god of any of the peoples around you or any of the false gods your temple you're attempted to worship. This is the one true God. So this is a wonderful counselor. Look at, turn over to chapter 11. We'll come here in a few weeks, but we'll see how these characteristics are going to propel us forward, especially in 7 through 12. 11, 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh, and his delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. That is the nature of the Messiah and his counsel. So all through this, we're seeing the, the characteristics that will mark the Messiah when he comes. The first, the wonderful counselor. Now, do, don't the people in, in uh, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom need a wonderful counselor? Because they're making all these decisions. Ahaz definitely needs to listen to the wonderful counselor, doesn't he? Because he's trying to find his alliances with men instead of his God, and the price is going to be paid. And we today... Do we not need the wonderful counselor, Jesus Christ himself? Guiding, directing, leading us by his word, giving us platforms to overtake the untruths that, is causing, that are causing the darkness to move around us. We are the people who need the mighty counselor. I don't want to stand before anybody, you here this morning, or anybody I'm challenging or counseling or talking to and give them my wisdom. We don't need your wisdom or my wisdom. We need God's wisdom, wisdom from above, not the wisdom from the earth. Now, it's going to come through us, right? We're going to be charged with being arrogant. We're going to be charged with being closed-minded. We cannot listen to that kind of conspiracy theory, can we? What was mentioned in Isaiah 8. We need to stand firm on the word of God because the word of God is our wise and mighty counselor because it is the word, the breathed out words and intention of the creator of the universe. So we need this as well. And he has come in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And we are told that if we lack wisdom, we don't need to stay in a wisdomless situation, do we? We ask God because he's the God who grants wisdom, but we have to first believe that he does grant wisdom and that he has wisdom to grant. And if we don't ask, we're foolish. So this is appropriate to them. And if you're part of the remnant and you've seen all the unwise decisions by your leader, aren't you refreshed 
by the promise of Isaiah, of God through Isaiah, that there is one who will be a wonderful, miraculous counselor. But look at the second name. Mighty God. Turn over to chapter 10. I'm not going to have you turn to many verses because there's a lot for us to get through today and we're making decent progress. But I want you to look at chapter 10, verse 21. Because some would say that this word doesn't really mean God here. It means hero. It just means, you know, he's, he's a strong man. But I object to that. Mighty God is our Messiah. Our Messiah is mighty God. And look at what just a few chapters from now that we will hear. Next chapter, verse 21. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For through your people Israel be as the for though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. Who's doing that? The mighty God. To whom do they return? The mighty God. Not just their hero. But God, so this Messiah is God. He is bearing the characteristics of God as we see Jesus come, born in a manger and live and die and do everything the Old Testament said he would do and everything he promised. We see that he was perfect in all his ways and he was perfect in all his ways because he was God and he is God. And he sits at the right hand of the Father still as the fully incarnate God-man interceding for us with all the wise counsel that's miraculous that we know that his character possesses. So he is God. There's no doubt in this. But look again, back in Isaiah 9, everlasting father, prince of peace, are the next two. So everlasting father. Two things we need to see here. One, we're not talking about the father as the first person of the Trinity. We're talking about the nature of the Messiah and his actions as a father of, of caring and protecting and comforting that's what a father does. A father is the one who comforts and cares for his children, comforts and cares for the people underneath him. The kings of Israel were referred to in this way as well. Now, some of you, your fathers are worthless in human terms and biblical terms. I, I realize that some of you have come from that. So when I talk about the father being good, you're like, not my father. And it's a struggle to come for you, isn't it? It's, a, it's an overcoming of an earthly father who did not image God for you in any way. But now you need to trust the scriptures that says your father cares for you. He has a compassion and a passion for you. If you are his, he is your father. You are his child. And this is everlasting. Your father may have been, all of our fathers were good and bad at being a father, amen? There, <clears throat> there were good days and bad days. You, who are fathers in this room, you have good days and bad days at being a father as God would call you to be. This father is everlasting in his nature. He starts this way, he continues this way, and he never stops being a loving God to us. So our Messiah is not only wise counsel, not only fully God, but he is compassionate and caring and provides for everything his people needs, and he does that forever. There's never ceasing or stopping or sleeping or regulating away his fatherliness to his people, but also prince of peace. This goes back to the government again. He is the prince. He is the ruler, and it's peace that he brings. So he brings peace between God and man. If we are in Christ, there's now more, no more condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. There's peace that he brings, Romans 5, Romans 8 tells us this. And so that there's peace between God and man for those who submit themselves, who, who trust in Christ for their salvation. But there's also ability to be peace between us. There's the ability for you to have peace with your enemies as far as it concerns you, according to Romans, right? Don't we need that reminder coming into the days that we are coming into? We're already in them, but what if the fire heats up and the ratchet turns? We need to be able to love our enemies, even when they're trying to kill us, even when they're trying to vilify us, we need to be able to love them. So since he is the Prince of Peace, he's enabled that in his people. And we get a picture of what goes on with this. So this God, our, our Messiah, he is a, a son, a ruler, he's eternal. But look at verse seven. There's also an increase of the Messiah's eternal, peaceful reign. We've already seen this hinted to in the eternality of the Messiah, but look at verse 7. 
of the increase of his government and of peace, so the government is on his shoulders, he is the prince of peace, of the increase there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, so there we're setting up, this is the eternal rightful reign. This is not some other earthly king that's coming. This is the king, the one that all the promises will rest upon. This is the king who sits on David's throne for eternity and all the promises through him are wrapped up in, in, in this eternal king. And he's the one that will rule. And this is the picture, brief picture of his rule. The Messiah is the one who eternally sits on David's throne. And so the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it. So right now we see a combating of those kingdoms, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of dark, still fighting each other. But Jesus is ruling. Can I get an amen for that? Do you realize how many people sometimes think, well, he's not ruling in this area? I mean, we can't ask the government to do righteous things because they're the government. Is Jesus Lord of all or is he not Lord of all? Is he Lord of all now? He is Lord of all now. Now, I'm not getting into the eschatological debates on what happens here. I'm reading the text that says, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. From the time that Messiah comes... And that's even so relevant to the people in 8th century B.C. that he says, what's future is now for you and forevermore. This reign, this rule, the Messiah oversees it. And you go, wow, that's where you lost me because it sure doesn't look like righteousness is reigning today. And yet God's kingdom is advancing, is it not? He is currently summing up all things in Jesus. He is currently judging evil. People who are any enemies of him are currently under judgment. His people are currently being ruled over and reigned over. And we, when we are being sanctified, we are bowing to that king. We're not bowing to Satan, the prince and the power of the air. We're bowing to our God who is ruling and reigning through his church, through his people, even today. That's why our marching orders are to go into the darkness, but not be of the darkness. And as we go into the darkness, they shake their fists more and the darkness increases. And we are the light that goes into that because we bring the light of Christ. And so God is doing his work, ruling and reigning through Christ who is seated at his right hand even today. And sometimes we forget that. That's what gives us the, the courage to be able to walk back into the darkness with the gospel. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go into a bunch of the responses. I mean, you know, the, I have no desire to try to outwit, outright, be more witty than anybody else who's writing on this decision being turned over, right? I have no desire to get into that combat and try to say something different than somebody else did. I want to talk to you and to me, as the people that I will give an account to God to on what, how we live in the midst of this. But it should trouble you when people who name the name of Christ take the other side. It should trouble you when you see people. I, I can think of a pastor um, in another, another state that we used to serve in who, um, unfortunately, some of the people that were in our church are in his church now, but it's moved to this side and he posted something that was kind of, it was halfway joyful about, about the, the, the overturning of Roe, halfway joyful. It, it, it was affirming that it should happen. And somebody in the comments said um, something to the effect of this is, this is a, uh, a horrible day in our nation or something like that. And you know what his response was? Many of my friends would agree with you, period. He's a pastor in a church. Now, there's a way to say, I know there are many people who disagree, but engage the person on where they want to defend sinfulness. He's a minister of the gospel. You are ministers of the gospel. So while you can affirm people who disagree with you, you cannot shirk the truth. You are representative of the light. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory, that God uses to attack the darkness. So this is a text for us. It reminds us of what Christ has come and done, fulfilled as in the 8th century Isaiah prophesied it to give encouragement to his people, fulfilled in Christ, active for us today as we await the perfection of the new heaven and new earth. Now Jesus, we, we know that we have a message that breaks through this darkness. 
Because we don't want to be the people who come in and do nothing but criticize sin and never give the hope of the gospel. We, we meet people and we take them where they are. We can affirm that they're in pain and suffering. I mean, a lot of the things that are going on today and being affirmed today, why wouldn't they cause pain and suffering? Of course they would cause pain and suffering. We want to engage people in their pain and suffering as we boldly give them the gospel. And that does not pull back the truth that their sin has consequences, both physical to them today, both emotional to them today, and eternally, more important than all of that, eternally on the day that Christ returns. Well, there's many places we could turn, but I want you to just turn one place to another familiar passage, Matthew chapter 11, and we'll draw this to a close. be a very familiar passage for most of us as we've read through a, many of us have read through a book that works these verses into our life. But the promise was that the yoke would be removed, the burden would be taken off, the rod would be removed. We'd be able to be in the presence of God, savoring his favor, savoring his presence, savoring his beauty. That's the promise that comes to us. It comes to those in the 8th century BC that Isaiah prophesied to. But look how Jesus the Messiah, as the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, look how he says the invitation to come to him and have that burden removed is actually done. Matthew 11, verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now that just catches us, doesn't it? The only people that are going to come are the ones that God chooses. The only people that are going to come are the ones that God reveals. Who sh he shines the light on them. But then just in the very next verse, we see the open invitation. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see the open invitation? Now let me tell you how that works. You take that invitation and you put it in Isaiah chapter 8 to those who are in darkness, and what do they do? <laughs> Against God. Because God has not revealed himself to them. But those upon whom he will shine his light of the sun, those who he will renew their hearts and grant them repentance and faith, they are the ones who will come because this is a joyous release of the burden of sin. A joyous release of the burden of working toward my perfection, working toward my salvation. This is a, an acceptance of the work of Christ, the work of God in Christ on the cross, and him shining the light of Christ into our hearts. And those who he has done that to receive this, and they say, yes, Lord Jesus, that is your role. There are some that will shake their fist even more contemptuously and the darkness will increase. But there are others who you will plant the seed that you may get the harvest, maybe not. But someone will harvest it if God is revealing himself to that person. And that's our role, to do so in loving compassion with bold truth. It puts great flesh on the phrase, speak the truth in love, doesn't it? Because it's his burden that we want everyone to bear. He has taken the burden of our sin on the cross, relieved it from us, and he says, take me instead. Take me, because this is who I am. I am your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he sends you in the world to be the same light, representing that light to all those who are in darkness. What a glorious mission he's given us, and what a glorious time to live, both celebrating the decision and rolling our sleeves up for the next stage of the battle because the war is not over. There's just been a battle won. Let's pray. Father, thank you for blessing us, for giving us the truth of your word, for sending, Father, the light of the world, for sending Jesus, who is the light of the world. He is the only light. He outshines the darkness. He pulls us from darkness to light. 
You take us from the kingdom of darkness and you place us into the kingdom of your dear son, his rule, his reign, his compassion, his zeal for his people. You place us in, his, in your kingdom, under his kingship, under his rule, and you tell us that it's joyful for us to be there. And when we, when we run astray from that, he comes after us, for he is the one who goes after one sheep that's lost. But you've also called us to this time and in this place. And we know that Jesus, as the light of the world, who has shined in our hearts and brought salvation to us, is the only hope for the people who are still shaking their fist, who are still looking at you contemptuously because you have people in those groups. You have people yet to save and you will use us to do that. So, Father, would you cause us to give attention to our life so that it looks like life and light instead of darkness, to cause, it, to cause us to pay attention to our deeds so that we are caring about the things that you care about. We are investing in the things that you would have us invest in. And that most of all, we are doing so in such a way that brings glory to you. For you don't share your glory with anyone. Make us be a people who does not step into that sharing of glory. That we are constantly deflecting glory to Christ. For you have people to save. You have miracles yet to work. Your son has not returned, so you are not finished. And you've promised that you will rule through your son and your son will reign. You've given all authority to him and he will reign in righteousness and justice. Make us a part of that, Father. For he is the light of the world that has shined in us and you've sent us to be the light of the world for those still in darkness. Thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.